Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And we're glad you're with us this week. A little later in the program, we will dig into some new research on how the Defense Department and the military services are handling joint education and qualification for military officers. More than 30 years after the passage of the Goldwater-Nichols Act, it is still a complex challenge. First, though, an update on how the Navy is working on improving the management of its supply chain. When it comes to improving the readiness of the fleet, officials at Naval Supply Systems Command think a little more communication with the service's biggest vendors will go a long way. NAVSUP is setting out what it calls a strategic supplier management program. The goal is to start setting up more collaborative relationships with the nine vendors it relies on the most for its big weapon systems, and more to the point in this case, the spare parts it needs to keep those systems operational. To kick off the show this week, I'm joined by Karen Fenstermacher. She is the Senior Executive for Strategic Initiatives at NAVSUP. She talked with me about how the command is starting to think differently about those big suppliers and how the lessons might eventually trickle down to some of the smaller ones. Navy readiness depends on robust and reliable supply chains. And so although we had engagements and and obviously uh, relationships with our key suppliers, um, frankly, the the necessary constancy of purpose to engage more fully around strategic initiatives was not there. And so as I uh, was assigned to this particular effort, Uh, My executive capacity really is all about, one, identifying who those most strategic suppliers are, and then establishing that constancy of purpose or communication cadence um, to ensure that we have the feedback loop uh, on how healthful the supply chain is and continued uh, communication around any challenges and how can we best solve those challenges together, meaning between us, Naval Supply Systems Command, and those key industry partners. And so we'll talk about who is and is not, quote-unquote, strategic in just a second. But, but you know, fundamentally, once you identify a supplier as, as playing a strategic role in your supply chain, how do you start to engage them differently? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the depth of activity really is what's different. I mean, all of our suppliers, and we have over 1,400, frankly, uh, in our portfolio, are, are key to the health of the supply chain. But the depth of activity that we're focused on with these that we've identified as the most strategic is, is really what's different. And so, you know, again, the, the opportunity for that top-to-top executive communication um, usually, we kick off with what we call a, a strategic uh, in- industry engagement. Uh, talk about what our strategy is. Uh, understand more what their particular business model and strategy is. And then, of course, what is that specific portfolio uh, that we're relying on them um, from a readiness standpoint? And from that, we establish uh, between myself and my team uh, every 30 days a touch point on where are we both tactically as well as strategically. And we identify uh, during the strategic engagement, what are those efforts or initiatives that we want to work on together? Um, That could be more robust joint forecasting, as an example. Um, That could be uh, establishing a longer-term contractual arrangement. Uh, What does that look like? And so those are the kinds of conversations um, that we have throughout any given year. And uh, 
you know, with a focus to finish, quite frankly, on those strategic initiatives that we set out to partner on. And, and so that is different uh, than many of our other suppliers uh, because of the, again, as I said, that depth of activity and that, that consistent communication and uh, strategic engagement. Yeah, so it, the majority of your 1,400 suppliers, you know, I imagine that the relationship really still is the Navy has a need, you place an order, they fulfill it. Right. I mean, contrast that with, with the depth of engagement that, that you're talking about here. And really, for the majority of the suppliers, the engagement is tactical. You know, I've ordered X number of these parts. You know, what is the status on a recurring basis of that particular order? The depth of engagement with the strategic partners is more around what are the kinds of things that we could uh, engage in collaboratively um, to improve the health of the supply system. And at the beginning of each year, you know, what is that particular effort that we're going to, we're going to focus on? What are the results that we want to achieve? And now let's collaboratively work on those. I mean, we don't have the capacity to have that kind of engagement with every one of the, of the 1,400. Sure. So these that are, that are most impactful, um, the, and we've identified nine, uh, what are those strategic efforts that, that we're going to embark on? And as I said, each one is a little bit different. Um, it could be joint forecasting, you know, more long-term contractual arrangements. It could be the pursuit of additive manufacturing, as an example. Um, that's one that we've, we've engaged a particular partner on. Um, and then we set a course for how are we going to improve that particular area with this initiative. And that really becomes our focus for the for the upcoming year. And it sounds like some, maybe most of what you're doing here is, is trying to fill information gaps that you've identified. So, so, so maybe you can give me some examples of, of the sorts of maybe insights that you're trying to give these uh, strategic suppliers into the Navy's needs, the Navy's demands, and, and vice versa. What sort of information are you looking for from them to the extent you are? Yeah. Well, for, from our standpoint, um, and I'll, I'll use the, uh, the forecasting as an example. So for a particular uh, item, sharing with them, what do we believe the future to be as far as the demand for this particular item? Is this particular weapon system set to sunset in a couple of years? If not, how long is this particular weapon system um, going to have to be sustained? And so providing that, that insight to the future enables the supplier to better be able to manage the industrial base. Um, and, and from that, what I'm looking for from them is what are the challenges in the industrial base? What are the issues um, that, that you see could impact us in sustaining this particular item over say, a 10-year horizon. And so that's the feedback loop and the communication. Here's what I'm telling you I need. Now, based on this, you know, kind of further insight into the future, what do you see as issues, and how do we strategically become proactive in co collectively solving those issues as we move forward? It's, it's pretty easy to understand how that sort of long-term forecasting and certainty would be valuable to, to an industry partner. But I, I wonder how much skepticism you get in that messaging 
given the experience that they've had recently with unstable budgets? I mean, I, I, I'm imagining a supplier sitting there and saying to you, well, that that's all well and good that you think you're going to, you've got this nice two, three year forecast for us, but you can't forecast your budgets with that level of certainty. Absolutely. And and that has been a, a significant challenge over the over the last many years. Obviously here with, uh, you know, focus on budget deals that that has eased uh, somewhat. But, you know, again, I, I can't predict uh, what's going to happen, you know, politically, which often drives uh, the vagaries of the budget. But, you know, it is that communication. And so as, as we're working through a fiscal year and looking at that budget horizon, you know, sharing that information on, on what do we know um, and how is that going to impact. I, I think I think at the end of the day, it's about being as, as transparent as we can be and ensuring that we have a relationship that's based on trust. So there, there may be a, a degree of skepticism, and I certainly understand that relative to the budget, but frankly, them being able to, to count on that candid conversation and and knowing that as we gain information and further insight, uh, we're going to share that so that they they can be as proactive rather than reactive um, to some of these some of these challenges that we have is is quite frankly one thing that has has proved beneficial to them and and they've uh, been particularly grateful for. That's Karen Fenstermacher. She's the Senior Executive for Strategic Initiatives at Naval Supply Systems Command. We'll come back and talk more about NAVSEP's new Strategic Supplier Management Program after a quick break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, I'm Jared Serbu. This is on DOD. And we're talking in this part of the show with Karen Fenstermacher, the Senior Executive for Strategic Initiatives at Naval Supply Systems Command. She joined me to talk about NAVSUP's new Strategic Supplier Management Program, an effort to build deeper relationships and better communication with the Navy's most important equipment vendors. And Karen, you, you mentioned that you'd identified so far nine suppliers that, that you're calling strategic safe to assume these are all large major weapon system OEMs from absolutely. from whom the navy buys absolutely. a lot of different things absolutely absolutely you know it's it it would not be surprising to everyone who is in the nine uh Boeing Raytheon Northrop uh major yes original equipment manufacturers who engage with us on a number of of critical systems you know the F18 the V22 uh, the Aegis, as an example. Uh, so these are, from a supply chain perspective, uh, those that largely have the most impact on the health of the supply chain. How far down the road are you on this initiative? I mean, are, are you at a point yet where you can start to point to some concrete results, whether that's cost savings, whether that's increased readiness? Yes, yes. So we really started a, a, a full focus on this in January. So we're about seven months in, and I can tell you that what we call unfilled customer orders for these nine, as we look at the data, uh, has reduced about 5% uh, in those couple of months. So, so again, that constancy of purpose, that consistent feedback loop on, you know, here's what I asked for, here's what I need, us being a more, a more demanding customer has reaped some initial benefits 
that are pretty significant from a readiness standpoint. It's understandable that you need to to keep this relatively small as far as the you know the senior leader to senior leader engagements with industry. But but you know I, I imagine that that having this sort of insight into the Navy's long term needs would be pretty valuable to the rest of your fourteen hundred suppliers. And I'm, I'm, I just wonder if you've thought through how you might accomplish some of that long term, providing them with some of the same types of information, whether that's in more automated ways rather than requiring human beings to engage at the level that you are with your strategic suppliers. Yes, absolutely. And and that's kind of twofold. Um, as we look at this long term, establishing a more automated customer relationship management tool set is a way that we can more effectively push information out, not just to these nine, but to the entire supply base, um, as well as them have the opportunity to be pooling in real-time information uh, as as we kind of see the world, whether that's specific to their particular area or cr- across a larger commodity base. The other avenue that we're pursuing, frankly, and, and some of my uh, colleagues in, in other services and defense agencies have been doing this for some time, is having either a quarterly or once yearly uh, industry day where we're inviting in our suppliers, and we're providing information on on what we see uh, as the future. And so sharing that information on a more aggregate basis um, in the spirit, again, of of communicating uh, how we see the world over the next, you know, five to seven years, and not only including demand, but where we see the budgets going, et cetera. And that's proved valuable, as I said, in some of my my colleagues' arenas, uh, other DOD uh, services and agencies, and, and something that we're seriously considering here for the fall time frame. Forgive me if this question is, is outside of, of your wheelhouse, but it, it seems to me all of the military services are really moving more toward a world of predictive analytics and conditions-based maintenance, kind of driven by AI, that, that's changing everyone's understanding of what parts are going to be needed at what time and what really needs to be stocked on shelves. I'm wondering if that's coming into play here at all and if any of that information is feeding into what you're communicating to these strategic suppliers. Absolutely. And and those are the, the conversations that we're having, particular to certain weapon systems and particular platforms is, you know, how do we changing or or where should we change the maintenance philosophies that exist today uh, condition based maintenance is is an area that that we discuss uh, quite frequently with a number of these industrial partners you know where does that best make sense uh, we just had an engagement frankly on monday with one of our our key suppliers and that was the conversation um, so the predictive analytics and and frankly for us becoming more mature in that realm um, with with the use of predictive analytics, but also the willingness to leverage the supplier's information. As you said earlier, the many of these uh, companies are the original equipment manufacturers and have significant insight uh, into the particular supplies. And so you know, frankly, heretofore, we haven't had a tremendous willingness to really rely on their information. And that's that's also part of this initiative is what is the kind of intelligence that, that we can use from the OEMs um, to better collectively predict 
uh, the future and, and, frankly, more accurately determine the best maintenance philosophies. Yeah, and I'm guessing not just information, but experience, because just to take Boeing, for example, they've got a tremendous amount of experience doing this sort of thing in their commercial business, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and and that is what they bring to the table. Um, you know, here's here's what's working best uh, in our, you know, in our commercial business and our production business, uh, and frankly, bringing in some of our own intelligence from the hardware systems commands, whether that's Naval Air Systems Command or, or NAVC Systems Command, um, the information that, that they have as well. And so forming that real triad between the production organizations, the, the program organization inside of Navy, and then, of course, the, the supply chain on our side, and having that, that uh, communication across those three key areas is, is just in the last six or seven months pr- proving beneficial as well. Okay, I, I know you're still getting off the ground with this, but but what's next? What are some you know sort of short to medium term goals for continuing to mature this program? Absolutely, as as we look you know here over the short term, it's continuing to strengthen the relationships. It's continuing to identify what are those strategic initiatives that we can collaboratively work on again with a focus to finish. And then over the long term, uh, you know, further dissecting this particular portfolio, uh, understanding, you know, more details around the particular uh, business strategies that these uh, corporations are pursuing, and looking at what are the other uh, key suppliers that perhaps we need to bring into the portfolio and increase the depth of activity that we're engaging. Our focus is, of course, on readiness and lethality. Uh, I think with stronger collaboration, we can certainly accomplish more than we can independently. And so the pursuit of these strong relationships, uh, not just with these nine, but others as we continue to move forward, is going to be key in ensuring that our our readiness and, and lethality is where it needs to be as we look out across the future. Karen Fenstermacher is the Senior Executive for Strategic Initiatives at Naval Supply Systems Command. She joined us by phone from NAVSUP's headquarters in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, to talk about the new Strategic Supplier Management Program. We'll post links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Another quick break, and when we come back, new research from the RAND Corporation shed some light on how the military services are balancing the need for joint duty assignments with their own operational demands. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. In the 1980s, Congress put a new emphasis on jointness amongst the military services, one of the main reforms in the Goldwater-Nichols Act and subsequent legislation in that era. And as part of that, lawmakers and the Defense Department created joint qualified officers. Those service members go through special education and accreditation to bring together multiple military services on the battlefield. The Rand Corporation did a recent study on trends among those officers from 2007 to 2017. It found the number of people becoming joint officers is shrinking, and the Pentagon may be going about educating those officers in a backward fashion. Federal News Network's Scott Bassioni talked with Paul Maybury, a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation, about the findings. 
The joint officer, uh, joint qualified officer, is one that sort of stems from a number of years ago when uh, the Goldwater's Nickel Act came into to being, and and a part of of that really was to to recognize in the mid-80s as the services were transitioning from pretty much service-dominated types of operations to, in fact, operations that were always uh, executed in a joint environment and therefore needed individual officers qualified in joint matters. And by that, joint qualified officers, what was originally called a joint specialty officers, were pretty much defined as individuals who had completed an accredited uh, education program, and that came in multiple levels, primarily an intermediate level and in an advanced level, and also had a joint duty assignment that pretty much uh, allowed them to practice what they had experienced and learned in those educational environments. And so joint qualified officers represented each service, uh, pretty much were selected and, and nominated uh, to both for both education and these joint duty assignments. Goldwater Nichols also put in place a number of sort of metrics to ensure that the services were in fact uh, applying and adhering to both the spirit and the intent of uh, that legislation. And that had to do primarily with looking at promotion rates of, in essence, field grade officers who were in joint assignments contrasted to promotion rates for uh, uh, field grade officers in service headquarters types of assignments, one. And secondly, there was also a requirement for individuals to be considered for promotion to general or flag officer that they, in fact, be designated as a joint qualified officer. And so the focus of this study really was trying to uh, move beyond some of the annual congressional reporting requirements, which are pretty much sort of snapshots of what the department has been able to generate in terms of a total inventory of joint qualified officers, as well as how many individuals are appointed on an annual basis by a variety of uh, sort of descriptive areas, by service, by grade, uh, and so forth, to really look at trends over time. And the focus of the study was on the active component, not the reserve component. Uh, it was focused on field grade officers, 04s to 06s. We did not get into the general or flag level officers. Uh, the 10-year period that I speak of uh, uh, was from fiscal year 08 to fiscal year 2017. And we're primarily focusing on what's called uh, JQO level 3. And this uh, really is sort of the, the essence of the, the joint qualified officers. There, there's a level junior to that, which is sort of, again, the intermediate uh, sort of company grade type of officers. And there's the general and flag level officers, which have uh, additional requirements for, uh, for education that's called capstone. And so we are primarily focused, again, on the field grade officers that are routinely referred to as JQOs.
so you mentioned inventory, and I want to get to that in a second. But before we address that, I was wondering if you could sort of explain why it's important to have these joint qualified officers. I think jointness has changed a lot, uh, and the meaning of jointness and, and the reasons for jointness have changed a lot uh, since the 80s. So why in this environment that we're in in 2019 do we need these type of officers? Joint qualified officers are those who actually serve in a range of assignments. Uh, uh, the services pretty much are responsible for the organized, train, and equip uh, responsibilities to provide capabilities to the combatant commanders. And it's those combatant commanders for which most of the billets on their staffs, both operational and staffs, uh, and the military units that perform their assigned forces really are executing operations in, an, uh, in a joint context. And that joint context can be across services. That's primarily what it was in the mid-80s. That concept of jointness has progressed over time to now include uh, international coalitional types of partners, NATO. So again, jointness is, is expanding and broadening a bit. Uh, as uh, that has continued and a variety of deployments for Operation uh, Enduring Freedom or Iraqi Freedom, uh, the concepts of interagency is another dimension of jointness, of using all aspects of national power to be able to uh, prosecute combatant commander operational requirements. And even now, as we sort of look to the future, the uh, jointness continues to expand, even in terms of mission areas, whether that's in terms of cyber uh, missions or in terms of space uh, force types of requirements. You can see that joint is becoming an ever uh, critical dimension to, <coughs> excuse me, critical dimension to the execution of combatant commanders on their, their mission requirements and operations. And so the services uniquely prepare warfighters in their respective uh, capability areas, and the joint qualified officer is one that understands the broad range of capabilities of other services, of other agencies, as they what they bring to this fight, so that they can go through and plan accordingly, execute accordingly, and be successful in the combatant commander's requirements. So, so you looked into that that inventory that has been uh, growing or not growing over time. You know, how is the military doing on the inventory of these sorts of officers, and and how do they get there? Uh, you know, once they sort of realize this need in the eighties. The inventory that we observed over this time period uh, from uh, two thousand and eight to 2017, uh, in essence went from a little bit over 5,000 in 2008 to a little uh, over 7,000, about 7,200 in 2017. And uh, so that's rather considerable in the terms of growth of absolute numbers for the inventory. Yet we did observe here in the 2015 and to 17 time period that these numbers are somewhat stabilizing and even have slightly declined for the annual appointees. And by a slight decline, I'm generally referring to uh, about 250, uh, a reduction of about 250 uh, uh, here in the 2016 to 17 timeframe. 
And so about a thousand or so are typically now appointed on an annual basis uh, in 2017. And prior to that, we had deserved a little bit over 1,200 being annually appointed. You're seeing this this trend of of uh, a possible decline or stabilization in the number of officers. You know, are they being utilized? Are they going on to these uh, areas where they're su- supposed to be going with this training? And you know, are they are they being used the way that they should be? Certainly. Well, that's a an, an excellent question. Uh, our trend study focused more on the supply side of this equation and uh, uh, the the. Are they being properly utilized? Is really trying to get at the demand, you know, sort of perspective, and and I think that is a fair fair question, one that we did not explicitly uh, examine, but I think is really appropriate. There are joint staff processes that try to get at. Uh, uh, the, this, this demand function, because you could say that either the stabilization of inventory, maybe that is not an issue if, in fact, demand is being sufficiently satisfied. Maybe demand has, in fact, also leveled off, particularly as the services over the last uh, few years have reduced their, their, their overall uh, end strength associated with uh, uh, officers. And so th- that's a, a fair question that Honestly, this study really did not get at, but we did point to a number of sort of joint staff processes that on a continuing basis do review this demand requirement. It's called the Joint Duty Assignment List, the JDAL, and that is a continuing sort of uh, validation process and a review process by the joint staff of the combatant commanders, OSD, and other uh, requirers of joint qualified officers on an on an annual basis, and so that list, uh, the JDAL, should be reviewed to ensure that it is reflecting actual requirements and demands, to ensure that the priorities are in fact being met. Because there's always this dynamic tension between the military services who are having to provide one. Uh, qualified and high uh, quality officers to fill joint requirements, as well as to meet their service requirements. And this goes back to some of the Goldwater-Nichols legislation and the tension between the services and the joint world in terms of demand for manpower, and that there is will always be this natural tension and a good, healthy uh, review process to validify what those requirements need to be and should be. That's Paul Mayberry, a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about a new RAND study on joint qualified officers and how DOD trains and assigns them. More on that research after one last break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbia. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Servu. Paul Mayberry is our guest for this part of the hour. He's a senior policy researcher at the Rand Corporation. He talked with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about some new Rand research on the military service's ongoing challenges with balancing the need for jointness in the officer corps with their own service specific needs. 
Uh, let, let's talk about the education a little bit. A lot of these officers are getting their joint education, it seems, in their kind of junior grades. Uh, but is that when they're really implementing the, the type of education that they need for this? Very, very good question. So the Joint Professional Military Education, JPME, really comes in sort of two different levels. Uh, intermediate level uh, education, primarily for uh, O3s, O4s, uh, and then this progresses into the more senior level JPME, uh, primarily for some O4s, O5s, and O6s. And over time, due to, again, operational uh, considerations, due to constraints in, in manpower systems and assignment processes, the offerings for this education have expanded over time. And so what was originally a concept that was primarily given at joint universities, primarily the National Defense University and all of its respective colleges, to include the Joint Forces Staff College in Norfolk, have expanded to have greater offerings for both JPME Level 1 and JPME Level 2. This study focused primarily on JPME Level 2. And so over time, Congress has allowed the services and their senior service schools, primarily their war colleges, to now be able to um, provide JPME Level 2 accreditation uh, and therefore their graduates to be able to meet this requirement. And so what we've seen over time is that uh, JPME Level 1 is generally a precursor. There are waivers to this. The waiver process over time has been more and more restrictive so that it now has become you do have to have JPME Level 1 and then 2. Uh, in the past, there were some uh, waivers that allowed you only to, to just get JPME Level 2, and that would be sufficient having waived JPME Level 1. So all of that aside, what we have seen is that uh, the offers or the graduates coming out of these both service schools, the joint schools, and the uh, uh, joint combined uh, warfighting school in Norfolk has been relatively constant over time, over that 10-year period. Uh, the JCWS uh, out of Norfolk is, is a 10-week program. Over that time period, they've produced a little over 55% of all JPME Level 2 graduates been pretty constant. Uh, the senior service schools have produced about uh, a quarter uh, of the JPME-2 graduates, and the senior joint schools about 20%. And surprisingly, those numbers have, in terms of percentages have been constant. They've gone up and down in terms of absolute numbers. But what we've actually seen is that uh, given senior service schools have now been allowed to confer JPME Level 2 upon its graduates, the services have pretty much allowed for joint duty assignments to proceed before education. And in 2010, the chairman came out and said the preferred order is that education precedes, in fact, the joint duty assignment because we, the joint staff, consider this a force multiplier. But 
as time has progressed, what we are seeing is individuals have, have in fact, accomplished and graduated from JPME Level 1. They have then typically, because of either service needs, individual officer needs, uh, gone into a joint duty assignment, and then at a later point in time, whether it's the senior service school, the senior joint school, or JCWS, then accomplish their JPME Level 2. This is somewhat of a paradox and inconsistent with that JDAL, that joint duty assignment list that I mentioned earlier, because the preponderance of those joint duty assignments are in fact in the lower grades. Uh, only about 20% are at the 06 and above level. And so what we're actually observing at this point in time is somewhat of a the assignments preceding education, but it's still because resulting in an individual eventually being uh, designated as a JQO. Uh, Part of the issue that this raises is, okay, so what in fact is the quality or preparations that are needed in these joint assignments for JQOs to be successful? Again, not something addressed in part of this study, but something that we recognize could be a part of the joint staff's PAGE program, the process for accreditation of joint education, which is explicitly supposed to look at outcomes of all of these schools to include the joint aspects of senior service schools. And so I think that is the fundamental question. One is, uh, what are the prerequisites required by the joint community, joint com uh, the combatant commanders in particular, for their duty assignments? Second, are the schools, in fact, delivering those types of prerequisites? Three, to the extent that education is essential to successful performance in those joint duty assignments, how, in fact, can individuals' be, careers be managed such that they try to achieve that education prior to the assignment and not afterwards? Now, uh, just a last question for you. You do add some other recommendations in your report. Would you mind just sort of, you know, going over some of the things that you think uh, DOD might be able to do to sort of improve their process? Sure. Um, one, I think that a part of what Congress required and even what OSD is still doing is looking at uh, sort of annual uh, reports or snapshots. And, and by examining only a single year, these reports really provide limited basis for assessing both magnitude and, and consistency of changes in JQOs over time. Um, and it's, also, it's, it's almost like trying to, you know, look at an individual picture or, say, a poster for a movie and say, am I interested in this movie and what does that single snapshot tell me about this entire movie? Versus a trailer, what I'm saying is trend analysis are more like a trailer that give you a more of a flow of what the, the movie is going to be about, what its context is, and is this something that is important or not, and how things may sort of flow and change over time. And it's those types of trying really through trend analysis to understand uh, and notice the effects that may not be readily apparent from a single year snapshot, 
but really try to better understand a range of policies that have been put in place over time and whether they are having the intended effects and outcomes. So that, that's one. Um, secondly uh, is really to take a look at the, the concepts of educational outcomes. We sort of touched on this earlier and what are the central prerequisites and expectations by the joint community and combatant commanders. Uh, to really also probably expand this work to take a look at the demand function. Because things have sort of stabilized here in the last few years, is that satisfactory? Does that mean that, uh, in fact, there are going to be shortfalls or the services are going to have to make uh, more restrictive prioritizations about how officers are assigned? That is a fair question that, that needs to be uh, incorporated into the joint staff's uh, validation uh, process of the joint duty assignment list. Then I think that the policies uh, associated with uh, the promotion rates of joint officers to be considered for flag officer, you can see that that is a very strong uh, incentive and um, driver for the services. Looking at and reinstituting a, a more focused policy on examining promotion rates may also get at these uh, sort of paradoxes that I mentioned where education is now coming after duty assignments uh, and by possibly reinstituting the concept beyond just reporting to OSD but really trying to focus more on how joint officers in assignments are being promoted relative to senior services. All that being said, I think that uh, this is a, an extremely complex management process of trying to coordinate ever-evolving and ex even expanding joint requirements against service you know, manpower needs that are also uh, take a lifetime to grow, develop, uh, educate, and uh, uh, really be able to, to generate high-quality officers. So this is an extremely complex uh, issue, but I know that the services have, in fact, uh, you know, committed to these concepts of jointness. They realize that that is, in fact, the way that they, they operate, uh, not only in terms of major combat operations, but even in terms of uh, uh, humanitarian support uh, to civil authorities. And so the concepts of jointness are here to stay, and uh, the services uh, have the ever- uh, struggle to ensure that they are managing their personnel to meet not only service requirements, but in fact how those officers will operate in a joint environment. That's Paul Mayberry, a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about a new RAND study on joint qualified officers in the military services. You can find Scott's story along with a link to the RAND report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Earlier in the hour, Karen Fenstermacher from Naval Supply Systems Command joined us to talk about NAVSUP's new Strategic Supplier Management Program, the effort to build deeper relationships with the Navy's biggest spare parts vendors. If you missed that conversation, this week's full show will be on our website and in our podcast feed. Subscribe to On DoD on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jiren Servian. So long.
You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 